When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everyone. Today, I will be chatting with Dr. Robin Hanley Defoe. Robin is a multi-award winning psychology and education instructor who specializes in resiliency, navigating stress and change, leadership and personal wellness in the workplace. What sets Dr. Robin apart is how she learned resiliency from the ground up as a person who has experienced significant obstacles yet forged her comeback. Dr. Robin has over 16 years of university teaching and research experience and brings a refreshing and researched informed perspective to our understanding and practices of resiliency and wellness. Dr. Robin's work is accessible and relatable while offering practical strategies that are realistic and sustainable. In today's episode, we talk about raising resilient children. Robin gives us some tips and tricks along the way from toddlerhood through adulthood. When children are resilient, they are braver, more curious, more adaptable, and able to extend their reach into the world. In the ever-changing landscape of our world, it is crucial for children to develop their personal capacity for resiliency. Let's dive in. Our first sponsor today is Navy Hair Care. I have been working with Navy Hair Care since they launched back in 2018. At that time, I was about a year postpartum with our third child, and my hair was experiencing some trouble after some significant postpartum hair loss. Navy really helped to strengthen my hair, and I noticed a big difference about one to two months after using it regularly. With biotin, vitamins, and rosemary oil, this shampoo and conditioner combo has been part of my daily routine for years now. I also use the charcoal mask every one to two weeks to help revitalize my hair. It helps to dry out toxins, heavy metals, and impurities, which we have plenty of since we have well water. This mask will leave your hair feeling incredibly soft and lightweight. You can use the code Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-Y, for 30% off your order, and I will leave the links to the products I mentioned within the show notes. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode, this podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. All right, everybody, we have Robin here with us today to talk about resiliency. Thank you, Robin, for taking the time to be with us. I'm happy to be here. So this topic, I feel like, is is an important one, especially given what the whole entire world has been going through the past two years with, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic and all the struggles that has brought to us, especially as women, who many of which have had to leave their jobs and had to learn how to manage if they have children, like their kids being in school and then being out of school and how what that looks like for them, trying to work from home while also trying to manage their kids schooling from home and so many other different things. And then, of course, you know, now we're in this new age where we have, you know, the war in Ukraine and we have inflation and we have all of these other things that, of course, everybody is worried about and, and stressed about. And so I feel like the topic of resiliency is is really important right now compared to compared to ever before. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You're yes. absolutely right. Yes. So I think we should start off with just talking about like, what does it actually mean to be resilient and why does this matter? 
Yeah, you're asking a great question. So uh, you're absolutely right as well with the last wee while we have faced enormous amounts of stressors and challenges as family systems and people within our family systems. This is a very challenging season and it continues to be a challenging season even as we are emerging hopefully onto the other side of it. So when we think about the need for resiliency, essentially resiliency is a series of skill sets. It's skill sets. It's uh, also temperament, so to speak, which allows children this opportunity opportunity to be perhaps a wee bit braver, but more curious, maybe more adaptable and better positioned to really connect with some of the challenging parts of their lives that they're going to experience. So it doesn't mean that they're bulletproof. It doesn't mean they're not going to have bad days, but what they learn is to do what they call a bounce back or a comeback to get them back to that place where they trust that they're okay. Yeah. And I mean, especially given what they've gone through the past two years, just like as an example, is they've had to adapt to like totally new ways of, of learning in the classroom, wearing masks, being six feet apart, having desk shields up, you know, having to learn from home sometimes, having to go back to the classroom, maybe not being able to go into the gymnasium like they used to and having to have gym elsewhere. And and all of this can be really, really stressful on kids. And, you know, having them have these skill sets, like you say, is is so important. Yes. And what we know is that as children learn to navigate uncertainty, as they learn to navigate change, and I appreciate that all different children have different and varying thresholds of what they're comfortable with. So you know what? There's going to be some children that rally and all of those new changes that you just described, it's going to seem like it doesn't really impact them. However, the majority of children, those big changes and that uncertainty does really linger and just their overall sense of security and confidence that they know how to like work their way through their worlds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So say we have a child in front of us and we're saying, you know, this child is really resilient. So what does that child look like? What are some of the qualities that that child has? Yeah, I love your question. And just one little kind of clarification piece is that it could change depending on the day. So resiliency isn't like a fixed trait where yeah. it's like, oh, this is how they're going to always be depending on lots of kind of things that are going on in the world, how much sleep they've had, you know, even just things like, you know, what the kind of their mood is like, or what even the weather is like outside. Like we know we're very sensitive to our environments. So that is always going to play a role. And I think it's important that we kind of recognize that bigger ecosystem that we live in. And when we look though at like, how do these children show up in the world? We know that first and foremost, they have this deep sense of belonging within their family system. What I mean by that is that they have a safe place. Like they know they have people in their back, uh, in their corner, so to speak, who have got their backs. These children really see that they have an important role to play. So they, they have that almost like that confidence, that steadfast confidence that, you know, I have a home team. And we're going to figure it out together. So that belonging is absolutely crucial. The second area that we see with these children is they tend to be able to like actually maintain a pretty solid perspective on what's going on around them so that they, they're aware and they just kind of see how they kind of problem solve or how they use their critical thinking skills. Like they seem to be have this like ability of like adapting in the current moment of what's being presented to them. So we see that sense of belonging. They know that they're safe. They can take risks. And when they're in those environments, they have a pretty good ability to like, and an age appropriate ability to kind of like judge, what do I need to do here? What, what makes sense for me to do here? The other variables are a wee bit different. The third one we talk about with resilient children is this capacity to accept that there are some things that are kind of outside of their control. Like they recognize that there's scopes and limits in terms of what's possible and where do they kind of put their energy and their focus. Then we also see that these children, they do have this uh, capacity, Lindsay, to hold hope, right? That they can lean into those good feelings. And we also know that they have this, you know, often we see them have this beautiful like sense of humor where that they're able to like kind of roll with things. They kind of don't bottle up and brew as much as kind of flow. And again, that ties into that adaptability where they recognize that, sure, they might have preferences, but sometimes they don't always get their preferences. So they have to kind of roll with what's being presented to them, whether that be anything from like a sippy cup when they're little all the way up to, you know, who's sitting next to them in the cafeteria, right? Just it's that ability to roll and to work with your current situation. 
And I feel like that's probably the hardest thing to do, especially as a child. I mean, you see it even, I mean, I see it in even my one and a half year old who the only way that she's able to communicate right now is to throw, you know, these epic tantrums when something doesn't go her way, you know, like, oh, I really wanted, like you said, that sippy cup versus, you know, <laughs> this one. And it's that like, oh my gosh, the the world is ending, you know, like I screaming type of thing, yeah. throwing themselves on the floor when they don't, they don't have the, the words to express how they're feeling or what they actually want. But I do feel like that for children anyway is is such a hard thing to help them to develop because I think it's hard for kids to understand, especially depending on their age, right? Like why they can't have that thing or why we're not going here or, you know, like why the world doesn't just revolve around what they want at every moment. So What are some of the ways that we can help our kids? Maybe if we can like start with the younger ages, so maybe like toddlers and then kind of move through and just trying to give us some tips on how to develop resiliency within our kids and and things that we can do along the way. Yeah, I think, again, I love your your example that you shared there, especially in your own particular case with the toddler and the sippy cup. Like, I understand, like, this is really hard sometimes to be able to help them understand the significance of why these skill sets are important. But again, we, we share them at kind of age-appropriate ways. And one of the kindest things that we can do for our toddlers is to actually model what self-regulation looks like. So when that we one is like kind of having that big meltdown and those feelings are so hard to communicate and, you know, they don't have any other strategies, what we can do is we can like make deep eye contact with them, like grab them by the eye We can take this really big, deep breath in and a really big exhale and exaggerated kind of like a sigh to exhale and say like, wow, big feelings, big feelings. And then we can go littler feelings, quieter feelings, softer feelings, gentler feelings, and just try to see if we can like ratchet down somewhat, but we can do that with our own bodies. And what children are always doing is they're looking around their world to learn, right? Like that's why they're so ego driven when they're in that stage of development, because it has to be all about them because they have a lot of learning that they have to do very quickly. So the more that we can be like almost exaggerate some of the key learnings that we want them to get in those moments. So that one there, big one would be like self-regulation, just really kind of not letting ourselves get ramped up with them, which again, as a mom with three teenagers, it's hard. (laughs) It's so hard. Um, So learning strategies for ourselves, right? As the grown up in that space to be like, okay, what does that look like? Does that mean I have to take a step back? Does that mean I have to like, even just put my hands in my pockets or like grab my water bottle, like just to do whatever I need to do to steady and ready myself to be able to support this child, how they need to be supported right now. And that, again, that example goes all the way from toddlerhood to teenagerhood, right? Our teenagers have that capacity to invoke it as well in us. Yeah. And I, I'm going to mention this too, because I'm sure you have a lot to say about this, but how we're reacting in all of these certain situations, whether or not the child is involved, you know, something could happen where the dog, I don't know, the dog throws up or whatever in the house and how you are responding to that even slightly higher level of stress at that particular time you know, is demonstrating for our children how we are reacting to that. So they're saying, oh, okay, when there's a little bit of a a stressful situation, this is how mom is responding to that. And this is how I should be responding to that. And I think that's what's really hard for me because as you said, like with multiple kids in the house, we have four, we've got a dog, we've got cats, we've got a lot going on. We both have high stress jobs and it's like, it feels like it's chaos all of the time. So trying to maintain this like this level of like we're calm, we're cool, we're collected is very hard because at any given moment there's something <laughs> there's something drastic happening where everybody's 100%. stressed out. Yeah. And you know what I often say in situations like Lindsay, I like and I echo that, you know, I I remember those days very well as as a parent and I see that with people I work with. One of the things that I think is so extremely important for family systems and we can do this kind of in two parts. First, whenever possible, it's so helpful that before you start your day. And I appreciate your day probably starts very early and lots of different pushes and pulls, but if you can even just get like 5 even 10 like sacred minutes first thing in the morning to remind yourself what calm feels like. Remind yourself what like grounded and steady and just like, okay, 
ducks in the row. I'm doing all right. Like just give yourself just that wee bit of a baseline check-in. And then what's really cool is you can then take that with you as you open yourself up into your day and meet all your demands and responsibilities and joys and all the things you get to do. But if you have that memory at top of mind, right, if it's recent enough, it's easier to recognize when you're starting to slip away from that sense of regulation. And it's also easier to kind of pull yourself back before you're like, all the way in it, right? When you're like, you know, maybe you're losing your cool. Maybe you're kind of like reacting in a way that's not really in a place of responding to what's going on. You're more reactive to what's going on. So having that morning baseline for us as grownups, I think is so important. And then you can do that as well, like with the little ones and like creating like sacred, quiet rituals in the morning where we just kind of like, maybe we like, for example, like get up and we perhaps change our clothes or get out of our PJs. And we do that with like, we do that with like, really, we do it slowly, right? We do it quietly. Like you can actually model just kind of that, that chill. And then the idea is, is that gives them like, oh, this is the time when we get to be chill. But what's so important is children also need to learn that there's a time where we get to be loud and big and messy. So then that way they can have that kind of ebb and flow that's natural to the seasons of toddlerhood. And I think so often we try to regulate them to the point where they're like steady all the time. But recognizing it's the same as like indoor voice, outdoor voice, right? Letting them know, oh, this is when we do a quieter voice. This is when we get to be really big and loud and let them be big and loud so they can feel, Lindsay, that difference. They can recognize it. And toddlers, they can do that really little. They can they can do those behaviors. And it, they love it, right? Because it gives them a sense of, of control. It gives them a sense of order and predictability. And the other piece, just to tie on that really quickly, is that we ensure that like we are setting the tone of what the house feels like, right? Like it's our job to set that tone and that vibe and that culture in that house because that's their safe place, right? That's their safe haven. We have to be able to know this is where we can go to retreat from some of those big things that happen out in the world. Yeah, yeah, sure. One of the things that I was actually working with my own therapist on this, just kind of like talking to her about how, like I said, the the higher, higher level of stress within the house and just how to manage that and how to cope with it. And she had mentioned, well, what are some things you like to do? And I was like, um, I really love music. I like to work out, things like that. So, you know, I always, I always work out every day because it's really, I mean, a lot of this is, it's really important for the parent, you know, to have their, their, for their mental health to be taken care of and for them to feel like they're setting a time, setting a time side to just take care of themselves before they have to take care of their little ones, you know. And that's something that's really hard to learn as a parent because you need to find the time to do that. But she had mentioned, well, why don't you put on some music in the background? And this was back in the fall when she told me this. And so at that time, I was like, that's a really good idea. And I wanted something like a genre that was instilled calmness within the home, right? So typically, we like to listen to hip hop and dance and like stuff like that. But I was like, I want it to be the opposite of that, right? Because I want to, the the background of the house to just have this, if if things are chaotic, I want to be able to focus on something that's like bringing me back down. And so I had put on this station, like, autumn jazz and then I switched it to winter jazz and now I'm like really into like the the best classical music that involves violinists so I just have that going on in the background and what's interesting is that my oldest she's eight she the second she comes home from school or from an activity or from being outside or whatever it is she's she just goes straight over and puts on the music and I was like oh isn't that interesting that she's like it's almost as if she needs that too now, like that she knows that that kind of like instills the calmness within the house, you know? And she's always like, oh, we have to have the music on. The music has to be on all the time. <laughs> yeah. And you know what's amazing about music? And I love that you've brought that up is one of the things that we talk about, especially when people are tired and depleted. And I know right now mamas are like, we're bone tired, right? Like our tired is tired. Like it's this deep, almost like this erosion of energy that so many of us are feeling right now. What's so extraordinary is in the research, we talk about these forces of recovery, right? Like what does, what actually makes you feel better? And again, I love that you describe some of the things by carving out some time for yourself, getting your workouts in, like those are all really great things that we can work towards. And the other piece that we found is that there's other other forces that increase recovery as well. And music is one of them. And the reason we've been able to see music have such this remarkable impact on children and family systems is that, you know, if you think about it, we're this like feeling factory, right? Just think about all of the feelings that we have during a course of a day. There's so many of them and we can't always put words or have time to process them. But the beautiful thing about music, it's a mood congruent agent. So what it does is it almost puts 
inputs like just this, these words or these melodies to a lot of the feelings. So our body and our brain will actually start to process them and release them in a lot of cases with just having music on in the background. So we can actually use that as a way of almost kind of like kind of working through some of that residual emotion that we might not have been able to work through through the day. And we can do it in a very short period of time, which is so important for for busy parents, right? That they can re-regulate so quickly. Oh, absolutely. And you know what's interesting too, the more I think about it and process through it is the way that I would deal with things. So I grew up as an only child. And so... (laughs) It's good. There's obviously pros and cons to to both being an only child and then also having a bunch of siblings. But for me, it was always hard because I didn't have that other person that was, you know, within my age range to to chat about, you know, whether it was like I was having an issue with my parents or whether it was, you know, something else. And so I would always work through those things. I always had music on in my in my bedroom. I always did. And I don't even know when I started doing that. I I was younger and I just always had it on, you know, so it would fit my mood. So if I'm in, you know, this depressing state, I'd be listening to like Nirvana on repeat or, you know, whatever. I'm giving away my like 90s childhood here. I love it. I love it. (laughs) You know, like that, I would just drown myself in that and it always made me feel better. And so my husband will always joke around. He's like, Lindsay, you listen to such depressing music because I really do. It's like the music I listen to is just like, it's a very like heartfelt type of music, you know, and but for me, it's such it's such comfort. And I think it's because I always used that when I was growing up like throughout being a teenager and and working through all the things that teenagers go through and I always did it through music. And so I hope that by kind of introducing my kids to having this music in the background and just showing them how important it is to like kind of set the mood and and to even like just set music when you're feeling like really sad and depleted and depressed and just kind of working that out through music that they use that as one of their tools when they get older, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And just one small little digression I can share with you. Yeah. I'm also somebody who appreciated the Nirvana during my adolescence. <laughs> and the best part was when, so I, as I said, we have teenagers. My two boys come home from seeing the Batman, the new Batman movie. And then Hunter, our oldest, was like, oh my gosh, mom, you have to hear this soundtrack. This Batman song is unbelievable. And it was actually Kurt Cobain. It was actually Nirvana. And I was just I like, I like, it. I knew every word of it. And he looked at me and he's like, how do you know the Batman song? And I'm like, son, we're going to have a little chat because that is not the Batman song. <laughs> we are going, that is Let's the Nevermind album. And we yeah. are going to, we're going to do some history lessons, son. <laughs> and, uh, but yes, absolutely. But yes, music is a gift. And what's so special about music is that I think so often we think about the music being a tool of recovery and helping children regulate moods for children who can actually create music. And if a child isn't quote musical or doesn't have those skill sets, sometimes we don't really think about introducing them to music the same way because it's like, oh, well, you're not, you know, you might not be musically inclined, but everyone can benefit from it. Like we don't have to be a, a talented musician to be able to appreciate exactly. the mood effects. Yes. yes. So to introduce music, I think is a, is a one, of, is one of the forces of recovery that we talk about. Yes. Yes. I love that. Um, all right. So do you think you have, do you have anything to add to this section? I have some questions that I think will be really great topics to bring up regarding resiliency, but is there anything you want to add to the conversation thus far before I dive into a few of those? Yeah, I think just one of the the kind of little qualifiers I think I would add to the conversation thus far would be just this this important kind of for us as grown-ups and parents and supporters, just to kind of keep a, a close eye on the narrative that children are starting to develop. Okay, so we start developing like a personal story very early and we hear it like things like, I'm not very good in math or I'm not this, or I'm not that. And what's so important is that as those kind of connections are starting to be developed or explored, that we ensure that there's also like a bit of a reframe that goes there as well. Cause that's just something where, you know, we, we, we want to be careful about the stories that children are starting to pick up about themselves, because we know that that has kind of, rep- there's consequences to that as they age. And the, the example I often share with, with families that I'm working with as, as someone who was, I wasn't diagnosed with learning disabilities and ADHD till I was much older, but I did pick up this narrative that school was harder for me than it was for my sibling. I wasn't very good at this stuff. And those, those take root if we're not careful. And again, the, the alternative not to say, you know, oh, you're great at school if you're not, right? Because it has to be truth. But the truth that I think we can really instill in our children is that that steadfast reassurance that we know that they can do hard things. They have stick to itness They have that capacity to, you know, adapt, to figure things out, to problem solve, you know, recognizing 
effort. Like that's the thing that I think children just really need that big dose of right now is that, you know, the world's not supposed to be easy, right? There's going to be hard times and they are well-equipped. They are well-equipped and it, and it starts with the stories that we tell ourselves. I like that you brought that up because I was reading, oh gosh, I want to say, I think it's the Danish way of parenting. And it was a few years ago that I had read it. But to be honest with you, I actually reread it every so often because there are parts in there that I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, I need to start doing more of this. And it helps to reemphasize like this is important because obviously our children, we want to say to them, you're great at everything. You know, yes. there are kids. <laughs> of course, we want to say yes. that. We want people to say that to us, even if, yes. if we're failing, but it's it's at a disadvantage for them. You know, it, it gives them a disadvantage because then they're thinking, well, I'm the greatest at this, even though I didn't try hard, even though I got a C minus, even though I you know, did X, Y, and Z, I'm still the best at it or I'm still great. And so I, a hundred percent, this is just something that is, is very difficult because I think she gave an example. And this was such a great example. Her, I think it was like the, the child was playing soccer or something and, and it, they did, didn't do well. You know, it, it wasn't a great game for them and they made a few mistakes and then they came out and they were like, well, I'm just the worst. And then, you know, as a parent, right, your first inkling would be like, oh, you're not the worst. No, you're great. No, 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 you're great. You know? And I think all of us would kind of float to that first. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Because absolutely. you want to just comfort your child, right? Like that's that would honestly be my first reaction if I wasn't deeply thinking about it. And so when I read this, I was like, oh, wow. And so it just went into these details about how she did respond, which was using some humor and then also just verifying how the child did play and then saying, oh, well, do you remember when you scored those goals two weeks ago? You really played great in that game. Today's game wasn't as great. You weren't on on point with X, Y, and Z, but you know what? You have been really great in the past when you did this or you know, at least you didn't, I think she like used some humor in there where she was like, at least you didn't uh, like sprain your ankle and and trip over a strawberry or something silly. You know, it was just like something silly, and um, you know, kind of like introducing some humor into it, and then also recognizing a different time when they did succeed, tried really hard and did succeed, and then acknowledging the fact that they didn't play that great. And so I was like. Oh, that to me was like this big eye opener because there's so many things to learn as a parent, you know, and, and one of them was always, I never just, I just never thought to do that. I just would always be like, Oh, I need to comfort my child. Like that's your first instinct is to just like give them a hug and say, you did great but they didn't do great. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you know what that does, unfortunately, is it sets up this like, uh, you know, it's a, such an unrealistic standard of what the big world's going to look like if they feel yes. as though that they always have to be perfect. They yes. always have to be the best. They always have yes. to be the hardest worker in the room. And I can share with you, and it's interesting because I have, you know, as I said, my, of the three children, all three of them are highly competitive athletes. And, you know, one of the things that I saw, again, as they aged, them having the self-awareness like children don't innately have self-awareness. They grow into it through their developmental stages and us being honest and sensitive and reflective for them is actually an amazing gift that we could give them to be able to say like, yeah, these are the things that I thought you did extremely well. I love the fact that you were coachable the whole game. I love the fact that you were a good teammate. Yeah. You did score on yourself. Yes, you did. You yes. did. You did <laughs> shoot it in the wrong net. That is a fact. And something that I know is that you persisted even when the game wasn't going well. And I love that you persisted. I love that you stuck it out. You took the loss and you know what? Now we're going to move on. And the past is in the past, right? So giving them the capacity to be able to really have that good heightened self-awareness, that truth, and also recognizing, you know, and one of the expressions was well, somebody recently asked one of our, our, our oldest, because he's graduating for high school. And they said, you know, what are some of the, your, you know, some of those lessons that your parents instilled with you that you really helped get, you know, helped you get through high school. And, and of course I'm like cringing in the background <laughs> thinking, dear Lord, what is he going to share? And Hunter's like, I love the fact that, you know, we always talk in our house that, you know, practice makes better. Like we just work from this constant model that practice makes better. And if we want to get better at anything that we, we got to put in the effort, we got to put in the time. It doesn't have to make perfect. Cause I think so often we hear that expression that, you know, practice makes perfect. Um, practice makes better and better you like better you in that place of showing up, being a teammate, being that athlete, doing all those things, I think is so incre incredibly important that they realize that it, it has to be associated with the work. It has to be associated with the, the prioritizing and the focus, all those things that we know are going to serve them well as they grow up. Yes, yes, exactly. 
what do you think here? A couple questions? I'd love to hear your questions. Okay. Yes. All right. Perfect. Oh, I love this one. Okay. So this was part of my issue. I've gotten better after four kids simply because I don't have enough <laughs> eyes to see them all. But how can I teach myself to be less of a helicopter parent? Okay. So you know what? I think if the goal right now is to be a helicopter parent, Lindsay, I think we'd be in a good place because the reality is that parenting that we're seeing right now in 2022, we would call that lawnmower parenting. And what lawnmower parenting is literally like before the helicopters would like circle above the child and swoop in, right? They would swoop in and they were on the ready. Now what's happening? Parents are getting out in front of the children with good intentions. They're plowing this perfectly manicured path in life called your childhood. And the children don't even know that there were obstacles. They didn't even know about bad things and heavy things and complex relationships and all of the things that, you know, we need to learn when we're little to be able to be like to be able to be functional as adults. So I tell you, the goal is helicopters to like at least let the children know that there's going to be bad days. There's going to be times things don't work out. There's going to be birthday parties that you don't get invited to. And you know what? We roll. We figure out a strategy to identify the feeling. So this feels disappointment. This feels sad. Okay. And what are we going to do with it? So I think this kind of idea of, you know, helping children get to this place. And we call this in my research, this idea about like courage over comfort. And so often we just want to provide our children with comfort, right? We just want to make it easier, bring ease into their day. But what I really want to instill in children is this, like this ability to be courageous, right? To be able to face big feelings, to be able to face difficult situations, because there's always going to be different times of stressors. And what's amazing is if we look at the last two years, we've seen that on a global scale. The reality is each and every one of us, each and every day, we're stick handling and navigating all these different things in different degrees at different points. So we want them to learn that efficacy of I can do hard things. I can figure these things out. And we do that by encouraging that, that courage over the comfort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one of the things for me was always like, I always worry about like worst case scenario. I think a lot of people probably do, you know? And so whenever my child or my children do anything, I'm always constantly like, oh, well, this could happen. You know, the risk is probably like 0.001%. But like as a, an emergency of <laughs> medicine course, provider, I'm always like, yes, yes. well, they could happen still. Yeah. And so that has been one of the biggest struggles for me because I'm I'm I was especially in the beginning with my first I can see it in her now which I'm trying to like you know push her in the other direction because she's very you can tell that's one the one area I really need to work with her on because I would I would constantly be on her like oh don't do that oh be careful oh and I don't do that at all now with my fourth but it's you know when it comes to resiliency you you want them to be able to push themselves a bit even though there might be a small i don't want to use the word danger but like a i don't know what kind of word you want would want to use for it but just like little bits of like trying something a little bit more out of their comfort zone right to see if they can do it and i think that's that can be really scary as a parent especially with your first child right because you're like well i don't want to i mean even something that has the littlest risk i don't want them to to do that because they could slip and fall. And it's like, well, what's the worst can happen if they slip and fall? They would get a scratch or they would get, you know, or what could happen? But in return, what you're doing is kind of like building that resiliency, right? Absolutely. Yeah. We talk about that as a differentiator and you're using the right language, this idea between risk versus danger. Like we're not going to let our children go in dangerous places. Like we know that that's our job to provide security and safety for our children, but risk-taking behavior, like we want them to learn how to mitigate risk when they're little, not when they're like trying it for the first time at 17, right. because the consequences are far worse if they've never felt risk and some of that adrenaline that starts to happen when we're kind of, you know, testing our boundaries. We don't want to be doing that when you're now, you know, getting behind the wheel of a car or going through, you know, senior years of high school. So this is this idea that when they're younger, we want to create environments where they can take what we consider like safer risks. And where we get that best benefit from it, Lindsay, we see in the research is actually outdoor play, like free yes. flow, free structured play. Let them yes. climb the tree, obviously not to the point where, you know, they're going to do a major injury where it's dangerous if they fall. Let them climb up on things. Let them experience that, that kind of just that openness, that spaciousness. And nature is just such a brilliant teacher. And children learn so much when they get outside. They learn about how to, you know, take initiative. They learn about industry. Like they, they really start to identify identity and being these eco stewards. And I know what happens so often is we just like schedule the 
heck out of our kids because we want them to be involved in things. But the reality is kids also need to learn how to be bored. They need to learn how to like how nature is this just phenomenal way of re-regulating the nervous system for children. And we know that children that get outside and who have unstructured play, like it's just remarkable. It's one of those things where if I told you like, hey, you could buy this course for your child and they would have all of these. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And they're going to have all of these physiological, psychological, emotional benefits. Parents would be just like grabbing at it, right? They'd be like, of course I want that for my kid. And then when I say, let them go out and play in a green space by themselves, like literally just let them go play in a park. They're just like, no, no, no. They need Kumon. They need math. They need language. They need, it's like, no, no, teach them that they are able to be eco stewards and watch how their world changes when they have the freedom to explore their lived environment. Yes, I'm such a huge proponent of that. And I've had a couple people on here just to come to speak about that because there's so many different, I mean, they learn so much by being outside. And me as a child in the 90s, I mean, that's all I did. I was yes. outside 24 <laughs> seven. So I do. That's one of the things that I'm, I just, I hope it it comes back around and kids are spending more time outside because you don't, I mean, I'll drive around. I don't see kids outside anymore. I feel like when I grew up, it was like we were everywhere, (laughs) you know? Because unfortunately, because of things in the media that we hear and what happens is, you know, you hear these cases that happen where children, you know, have been, you know, awful things have happened to children and the percentage is so low, but that, that fear just absolutely takes roots in parents. So it's like, it's not safe to play out front. And, and what's interesting is the more children that are playing out front and looking out for one another, the safer it actually would be getting the children out in community and gathering spaces. But what's happening is, you know, we're keeping kids indoors and it's a it's that fear piece and of course nobody wants that horrible thing to happen to their child and what we know is that is actually like sending the messages as well to the child that the world isn't safe and that again and, and that's why we're seeing such heightened levels of children with anxiety and, you know, nervousness and just this like inability to kind of get out there. It's because we've been telling them since they were, as soon as they walk out of the front door, that big, that world is dangerous. So versus saying, we want to make sure we're, we're cautious aware and let's talk about what skill sets are going to serve you really well. And I can share with you. I remember I was traveling with the children and it was just myself and the three little ones. And we actually, I lost our, our daughter. We were at like a, kind of like a outdoor park, like an amusement park. And I lost our daughter. And of course, all of a sudden, just the size of the world just grows exponentially when you can't find your child oh, in it. He sure it's does. Awful. Like it's horrible. Mm-hmm. And then, and then I just remember having this, you know, kind of this moment and then maybe about 20 minutes pass, which might've felt like two years, right? Like it was so overwhelming. And then all of over the intercom or the speaker system, they called me and said, you know, please come to this area. So I went to this area and sure enough, there's Ava, right? Four years old in her little sundress standing there looking at me. And I said to Ava, I'm like, Ava, like Ava, what happened? And she said, don't worry, mom. It's totally cool. She's like, I did what you said. I went and found another mom. And I found another mom who had another stroller that and and said, I lost my mom. And my mom says that I have to find another mom because moms will help moms find their babies. Isn't that and, crazy? And so I just You're had so this proud moment. in that moment. Yeah. Oh. But again, it's just like, I just love the fact that we had the conversation before we needed to have the conversation, Lindsay, right? And I tell you all the time, it's like, and if anything ever happens to you, find a mom, like any mother is going to help you, right? Because I believe that in the human condition that any other mother out there, I would help your kids and I've never met you, yeah. right? Like yeah. that, that's the truth. So letting them know that they're safe people in the world and just like find a mom, find a stroller, like you're good. That then gives them that, that those skill sets that in that particular case, right? Ava was able to find somebody who could help her. And the mother took her right to that front pavilion where they had that in her. I'm like, mom, that mom knew what to do. So I think equipping them with those skill sets and that language and talking about these things are so important. Yeah. And, you know, kind of stemming off that, I, I feel like it's so important to, to know too, that regardless of her child's age, like they are able to kind of like handle that discussion, you know, like, I mean, of course, age appropriate, but, you know, a four-year-old telling them, like thinking that it's, it's, it, it wouldn't happen a million years that they could walk away from me. But if they did, even just telling them exactly what you had said and like seeing that actually play out and like seeing that, that child do what you exactly what you had said. And they, and they did it in a way that they weren't stressed. They were like, Oh, well, mom just told me to do this. So I'm going to go, you know, it's like so amazing. 
anyway, yeah, I, I, I think I would be so scared that my child left me, but I would also be so incredibly proud and excited <laughs> that, that my plan worked. You know what yeah. I mean? Okay, so let's see what else do I have for you. What are some things that can, that can affect either a child or or an adult's resiliency? Yeah, oh, that's a great question. It's it's quite a complex one just because there's so many things that can really impact. But you know, obviously, we know that adverse early childhood experiences make it more challenging for a child to to be able to you know figure kind of their way in their world, and especially with that sense of safety, right? That sense of safety and belonging, which is so crucial to their development. But what we also know is none of that is unsurmountable, right? Like we know it might be a bit harder for some children given their temperament or their lived experience, but that doesn't mean that they're precluded from being able to be resilient. It's just going to might look a wee bit different for them. They might have to perhaps get some more supports or again, anytime when there's trauma involved, it's harder just because we're, we're managing a system that's under threat. So yeah, some of that stuff makes it a wee bit more complex. I think another component that kind of leads into our capacity for resiliency is again, it's that, it's that opportunity to practice, right? Right? that opportunity to embrace discomfort, like it, realizing that sometimes things don't always kind of work out exactly how we want them to. And using that as a bit of a ability to kind of like prioritize, you know, what matters and how do we kind of make what matters most matter most. So those are the, you know, helping children kind of learn the fact that they, and it's not that it's all doom and gloom, Lindsay, right? My, my intention would never be to like set children up thinking this world is a, you know, big, horrible, awful place. That's not the case. What we know is that it requires a very specific set of skill sets to be able to navigate it, to be able to find our way in there. Um, the other piece that we also know is, you know, emotions play a huge role in our capacity of resiliency. You know, there's some emotions, for example, children grow up with where we don't talk about those emotions, right? We don't, whether it be like jealousy or, you know, sadness, it's like, no, no, we don't go there. Well, that doesn't really give them a lot of opportunities given that we're this really big feeling machine with all of these different feelings. So for example, if we were told, you know, we don't, we don't feel jealous in this house. It's like, well, you actually will naturally feel jealous because that's part of our biology. So that creates this disconnect. So just understanding that the emotions are part of the lived experience and helping them learn words and language around describing how they're feeling and, you know, not setting the bar that happiness is the ultimate goal. I don't think happiness is a, a realistic goal. We want them to be confident and we want them to be engaging and really enroll in all the good parts in their lives. But telling them that they have to be happy all the time, you know, that that I think actually sets them up for failure, unfortunately, versus encouraging them to like find, you know, find your steady, right? Find your stride, find your rhythm, find you. And, you know, you will do you better than anyone else can. And just giving them the confidence to be themselves. And it might look different than their siblings. It might look different than the family across the road. And that's okay. That's completely okay. Yes. Yes. I agree. Okay. Let's see. Oh, this is a good one. What coping skills should I be demonstrating for my children as a parent? Okay, so the number one coping skill that I encourage parents to use is actually like slowing down, like actually just taking your breath. Like, you know, when you're feeling overwhelmed and wobbly, just take that moment to kind of take a deep breath in and that slow, steady exhale out and just show children that there is a space between what we feel and how we respond. I think that is the coping strategy that the whole world, I think, needs a reminder of is that there is this precious place in between what's happening to us and what we're going to do about it. And when we can have that, just that little bit of spaciousness, I think people make better choices. And that is that coping strategy that I think we need to slow down. We need to get aware, like be omnipresent, mindful of what's happening in our lives right now versus being on autopilot. Because I think the vast majority of us are, are just, and again, part of that's maladaptive, but we're just trying to get through the day. I understand that. We have the capacity to slow it down, that urgency. And that's a really amazing thing, Lindsay, about stress is stress sends the message to your brain that everything is urgent. Like you got to do this right now. Like this is do or die now or never. You got to get it done. The reality is very few things require that degree of urgency. And when everything's urgent, nothing's urgent. So again, helping them kind of slow it down is that coping strategy. And it's amazing because when I see children use just that little bit of pause, that little bit of breath work, it's like they're these old souls, right? Like you see them on the playground and they're just like, people use words to describe them that they're wise and they're thoughtful. And it's like, 
yeah, or they're just not freaking out, right? Like, you know, it's it's amazing just to see how giving them that little bit of a pause is a game changer. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I totally, totally agree. All right, here, let's see, I have two more. Oh, I like this one. How are trophies for all or participation awards affecting our kids long-term? Yeah. So I, yeah, I have very strong thoughts on this. Um, I, I think community is so important. Children being included and having space. I don't think we need to create this artificial sense of everybody is, everybody is winning because the reality is that just is so it's just so misaligned with the reality of things like on the bigger scale, Lindsay, like social justice issues. Like when we, we think about the big, big picture, this doesn't work that way. We're creating this illusion that like everything is going to work out in this particular way. And, you know, I think honoring effort is extremely important, but I think it needs to look different based on how much effort people are putting in. Because at the end of the day, you know, we know that one of the hardest things when we think about emerging adults is so many of these children are transitioning into early adulthood and early adulthood, my goodness, now it's like lasting like 12 years, right? Before early adulthood was like maybe 18 to 21. And now all of a sudden early adulthood is like, you know, okay, sort of 16 where they're getting enormous amounts of responsibility and privilege. And then it's like rolling into like 27, 28, yeah. <laughs> like that's a really long season. <laughs> So that really skews perspective, right? That really skews perspective. So I'm not a huge fan of, of kind of the, the all winners tournament type approach, because I do think that it sends a lot of misinformation to children about what it looks like to show up and what it looks like with effort and skill set development. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, to give your child, I can't even imagine being like, as myself, you know, like a 16 year old, and everybody getting awards for everything all the time, and then going into the real world and being like, well, why didn't I get the bonus? Everybody else got the bonus. But I, you know, you but you didn't put in any of the work, but I still, I still want the bonus. Like, you know, so yeah, it's it's just so important. A lot of what we do as parents, and you know, as educators and such, prepare our children for the real world, you know, once they turn 18 and they go off on their own and, and giving them the skill sets that they need. And I just don't think it's doing us any favors by like no, offering, no. you know, the participation awards. Uh, okay. Last one. Can I do any daily things as a parent to become more resilient? So I know you had said, you know, it's really important, maybe trying to take that 10 or 15 minutes straight out of the gates when you first wake up is, is really important. But is there anything throughout you know, are like that we can make a daily ritual or, but just something that we can do daily that will help ourselves to become more resilient. Yeah. And what I, when I often say to this, this type of a question, Lindsay, is that like, you got to do the work right there. Like we actually have to do the work. There's, there's no shortcuts. There's no quick fixes. There's no, you know, magic wands that all of a sudden are just going to knock us into this place. We have to do the hard work. We have to like figure out, okay, what are, you know, where are, where are we struggling? What things are we avoiding? What things are we staying so busy that we don't actually have to deal with? You know, cause what happens so often is so many of us, parenting hood is a very special season for so many reasons. And one of them especially is that we all of a sudden get to pause a lot of our own growth because then we become so focused on the child's growth that we just kind of go into the standby pattern where we don't really do a lot of our own work because we're so busy looking after them, which is again, that we're, we're, hardwired to do that. But what happens is then all of a sudden we stop, perhaps you get a morning off, or maybe you just have a few minutes to catch your breath. And then all of a sudden you start to feel sadness or restlessness, or just kind of that sense of not being enough. And the reality is we're not tending to the own work that we have to be doing concurrently while we're with the children and raising the children and, and having those conversations. And, you know, I remember I, you know, our, our oldest is he's turning 18 very soon. And, you know, I remember the first night in our hospital, it was just he and I in that hospital room and looking down at that little baby saying, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to get this right, but I'll try my best. And knowing that for me to be able to try my best, I also had to make sure I was looking after myself. And that wasn't selfish. It was science that if I wanted to show up for this kid, this baby that I've been entrusted with, that I also had to entrust that I was going to look after myself in the process. So it's not, I think often what happens is we go into that season, we go into this moratorium, so to speak, of our own growth and development, and maybe processing our own issues. And then we perhaps think that we'll revisit it when the children are older. However, I think people deserve to be well today. And I want people to be well today. And there's no shame in doing that work and ensuring that you have the support to then be able to show up for the people that are counting on you. Yes. I think that's the perfect way to end that. <laughs> Thanks. 
So two questions for you that have nothing to do with the topic that we talked about today. So the first is, if you could give one piece of advice to mothers, what would it be? One piece of advice to mothers would be to, would oh my gosh, that's a, such a good question. There's so many things, Lindsay. I know. Okay, hold on. Got to pick one. <laughs> one, what would I give to mothers? Um, yeah. If you're asking whether or not you're a good mother, you don't need to ask that question because the good mothers are the only ones asking that question. So, <laughs> you know, the piece of advice is if you've ever wondered, am I a good mother? You already know you yeah. are. Yeah. Yeah. You care enough to, to know the answer Ask to that question. question. Yeah. 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 And then the second question is, if you could make one meal for your whole family that everybody would eat, and that's relatively quick and easy, what would it be? Mac cheese. My children, mac cheese is this like comfort food in our house. And I can tell you, I can make them the most beautiful Thanksgiving feast. And I get a, that was really nice, mom. And then I just make them my mother's mac cheese recipe. And oh my goodness, they think I walk on water. Oh, you um, have so to give us they, a recipe. I got to put it in the show notes. <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes. It's so basic. And I say, when the children come home, and again, I have big teenagers now, and they come home and there's leftover mac cheese that I might have made earlier for like somebody else who was home. Oh my gosh, you think they won the lottery. It's So I have no idea why, it. but we have a lot of positive memories associated with mom's mac cheese. That's great. Okay. Yeah. I, I got to try it. I This is like one of my favorite questions to ask my guests because it it gives me like this whole arsenal full of like new recipes to try. I love it. Yeah. I mean, what person doesn't like mac and cheese? Like I exactly, you know, so that's great. Well, thank you so much, Robin, for taking the time to talk with us today about this really important topic. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to our paths crossing again. So thanks for listening. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.